Well, hello and welcome to the first encephalitis podcast of 2021 and the 11th in our series. Um, I think it'd be right in saying it's been a very difficult uh, first few weeks of the year for most of the world. But of course, there is this glint of hope and positivity with the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. And it is the subject of vaccines and vaccination, which is the focus of this edition uh, of this podcast, where I'm delighted to be speaking to Professor Tom Solomon. Many of you will be familiar with uh, Professor Solomon through his role as president of the Encephalitis Society, but alongside that, he's also the director of the National Institute for Health Research, Health Protection Research Unit in Emerging and Zoonotic Infections, head of the Brain Infections Group, professor of neurological science, honorary consultant neurologist, and a member of the UK government COVID-19 vaccine benefit risk expert working group. So all in all, I think you'll all agree that Tom's very qualified to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. So Tom, thank you for joining us. You're welcome and and, um, thanks for that introduction. Of course, I should point out that although I sit on the expert working group advising the MHRA on vaccines, um, I am talking in a personal capacity today. Um, Look, you know, talking of personal capacities, Tom, uh, you had a bit of an unwelcome start uh, to the year, uh, having contracted COVID-19 in the new year. Um, How are you? Yeah, so more personal incapacity than capacity. (laughs) And uh, you're right. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I had a very mild illness compared to many people who have very severe illnesses. You know, I was just at home. Um, but was laid up in bed for a couple of weeks and still I'm not quite back to 100 percent and it's always interesting getting up close and personal with diseases that you're studying Uh, but what it did remind me is that we tend to focus on quite rightly on severely ill people in in hospital who sometimes very sadly die and we tend to think oh it's just a mild illness for everybody else but actually it wasn't you know it was quite a severe in terms of it was like a bad flu knocked out for a few weeks and still not back to 100%. And I think that does become relevant when one's thinking about vaccines. Yeah, I mean, I've known you for over 20 years and I don't don't think I've ever really known you to be poorly um, like that. (laughs) No, it's true. It takes a lot to knock me down normally. And um, also more than that, it takes a lot for me to admit uh, that I'm not at 100%. And I do admit I'm still not at 100% and I have sympathy uh, for the many people who have had seemingly just a flu-like illness and then it's taking a long time to get back to normal and we know lots of viral infections can do this and uh, most people with a mild disease like that do get back to normal but it can take some time so it's giving me a lot of sympathy for, for some of my patients. Well that's that's always a good thing for our for our doctors to have uh, empathy for their patients. So look when we announced that we were doing a podcast around vaccines we were, have been absolutely inundated with questions from uh, people around the world. Many of them as I'm sure you can understand have concerns about vaccination especially if they're recovering from encephalitis or undergoing immunosuppressant treatments. So I thought what we'd do uh, for this podcast is start, I think, naturally at the beginning and talk a little bit about the vaccines themselves and then go into some of the more personalised questions that have been sent in. Um, But our first question is from Lucy, who's one of our volunteers, and she says, please could Professor Solomon explain the process of how vaccines are made? How are they different from one another? How are they the same? And and why is the science behind it not new? 
Thanks. I mean, clearly this is a question we could spend the whole hour answering just this one question, but we won't. I'll try to keep it simple and short and, and say that to understand the difference between the vaccines, you have to, first of all, understand how a vaccine works and what it's trying to do. And, and to understand that, you have to understand a bit about how the body fights infection. And in summary, when we get infected with a virus, the way the body fights it is with things like antibodies that latch onto the virus to stop it causing trouble and things like T cells, which are which which destroy the virus as a whole, if you like. And that's the body's natural response to an infection. And what a vaccine is trying to do is to mimic that response. And the way we try and mimic it is by showing it something that looks like the virus, but is not the full nasty virus. And there are different ways of doing this. So in the past, with things like polio, what we used to do was show the body uh, the polio virus that had been killed. So early polio vaccines were just killed polio viruses. And what that meant was that the body saw the virus, developed an immune response to it, developed the antibodies, etc. And then when you got real polio, your body was ready to defend you. That's the essence of vaccination. So that those are the old vaccines were things like killed virus. Or the other way to do it was just to get a virus and modify it and modify it. So it was still a live virus, but it was so weakened that it wouldn't cause you any harm. Those are the two old types of, of vaccine. These newer vaccines for, for COVID-19 are different, but the basic principle is the same. And the basic principle is to show the body this spike protein, which sits on the outside of a virus, show it just the spike protein. So then the body starts to make defenses antibodies etc t-cells against the spike protein and that means when you get the real virus infection your body can deal with it and, and just to finish off uh, the the two vaccines that we have in the uk at the moment the the oxford astrazeneca one uses a, a technology that's a new technology but it's been used on thousands of people already in trials and, and that is basically putting this critical spike protein into something called an adenovirus vector it's just a way of getting it in Whereas the Pfizer vaccine, what it does is it just takes the genetic code for the spike protein, it's like the instruction manual, and it puts that into our body so that we make just the spike protein. And then again, the body says, we'll create immune defenses against that spike protein. Thank you. Um, and one supporter said, uh, can a vaccine be totally safe if it only took a year to develop? How would you respond to, to those concerns? Well, nothing in life is totally safe. No vaccines that are given are totally safe. No drugs are totally safe. No drive to the shops is totally safe. Uh, it's all about relative risk. It's how safe is it compared to other things? And so I think the question really here is, can a vaccine that's been made in a year be as safe as vaccines that normally take 10 years to make? And the answer is, yes, it can. And the reason why it is as safe is because it's gone through all the same processes, but in normal vaccine manufacture, we do the first step, uh, which is creating the vaccine, and then we put it in uh, cell lines, and then we put it in animal models, and then we do it in a small number of humans, and then a larger number of humans. And th this is why it takes so long, and there's lots of steps, regulatory steps between all of those. But what we've done for these vaccines is done some of those steps in parallel, and then also uh, speeded up the regulation. And so the committee, the MHRA working group that I'm on that advises the MHRA, normally those things take weeks and months and we worked our socks off to, to, to get it done in weeks. 
And I, the analogy I draw when I was trying to explain this to people is, is, is with getting through the airport to get on a plane. You get lots of security checks, safety checks, your bags are checked, you go through the screening, okay? And it normally takes most of us a couple of hours. If you're a business class passenger, you can whiz in and jump the queues and get there in, in half an hour. And so it's, but, but there's nothing, you know, you wouldn't say all oh, well, the business class passengers are more likely, you know, the risks are greater from them. Uh, it's just a speeded up process, but with all the same steps. Oh, thank you. Well, um, Tricia wanted to know, you know, I think linking into that, Tricia asks a question. She said, are there any risks, though, to the COVID-19 vaccines? Can it cause outcomes such as encephalitis, for example? Well, the, the, there are risks to vaccines and it's all about the, the, the benefit versus the risks. And that's what uh, groups like the MHRA group is all about. But there are no cases of encephalitis caused by the vaccine, as far as I'm aware. Um, but of course, there are cases of encephalitis and other brain problems caused by the virus. So that's why the benefits of the vaccination outweigh the risk, the risk, certainly in terms of if you're worried about encephalitis, that the, the benefits are clearly beneficial to take the vaccine. Well, look, I'm curious, um, you know, uh, on a personal level about your perspective on uh, vaccine hesitancy or vaccine confidence, as, it, as it's more commonly called these days. What do you think about it? What drives it? And what, in your opinion, should we be doing to address it? Because this is a topic that I'm actually very passionate about personally. Well, again, it's another massive topic that we could spend a whole hour talking about. I, I think we have to distinguish the vaccine hesitance uh, from the anti-vaxxers. So I see people who are anti-vax are those who uh, have passionate beliefs against vaccines, against all vaccines, and they're based on false premises, uh, basically. They, they, uh, they don't really want to look at the science or address the science. They just have a passionate belief and they'll say anything they can to, 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 to enforce that. Um, I think vaccine hesitancy is just people thinking about the things and vaccine confidence that we've just been talking about. It's about risk versus benefit. Um, so, you know, anyone who has a vaccine, whether they consciously do it or not, they're thinking, um, are the benefits of this greater than the risks? And uh, the, all the data show that the benefits are, are massively greater than the risks. Um, but I think people are right to, to, to give it thought. And I think we have to be careful as those who believe in vaccines, not to sort of dismiss or poo-poo the hesitance. You know, people are right to, to look at it and think about it, but the vast majority of people who look at it and think about it will want to get vaccinated. Yes. Well, we've had a few questions around whether the COVID-19 vaccine is safe to take at the same time as, as other vaccines, such as the flu vaccine. So we've got a couple of questions around that. This is from Joanne, who tells us, six years ago, my child nearly died from acute necrotizing encephalopathy. Um, from a, a flu A virus. She's almost 13 years old now and has the flu vaccine every winter. Is the COVID vaccine recommended for her? And if so, which one would be more suitable? Well, um, I, I'm really pleased to hear that Joanna, I mean, her story, her child's story really exemplifies it. She had a very nasty illness caused by a virus and then subsequently took the vaccines to try and prevent that, that virus coming back. So, um, the specific question, the COVID vaccine, yes, it is suitable. It's not a, uh, we call them contraindications. That's the term meaning reasons for not having the vaccine. And there are, there are a, a couple, but having had that illness in the past is certainly not a contraindication. 
Okay, uh, I'm particularly interested about this next question, which came from Kathleen. She said, uh, uh, I was told by my neurologist to not put anything in my body for two years after encephalitis, so no flu jab, but my GP disagrees. I've decided to have the flu jab as side effects of influenza can be encephalitis and I don't think it's worth it. I wonder if this is the same with COVID with the COVID-19 vaccine. Well, a previous encephalitis is not a contraindication to not have the vaccine. And um, I, I think clearly different doctors have different perspectives. If you're a neurologist, you see people with neurological diseases. If you're a GP, you have to look after everyone. And it's really uh, GPs that uh, have uh, make decisions about vaccination. And they, you know, they're the people who do it all the time. Neurologists are, are not. So, um, uh, you know, I'm glad to hear, glad to hear that that, that this person should go ahead and, and get the get the vaccine. And just to make sure we've answered the, the first thing you mentioned, which I don't think I answered, was about is it safe to take the COVID vaccines at the same time as, as flu vaccines? And in fact, we we don't recommend that. And, and basically that's because there's no data on that. People haven't done them. We there's some suggestion that if you have one vaccine and another soon afterwards, then you may not get quite as strong an immune response. So we usually say separate the vaccines. Okay, thanks. Um, well, it, shortly we're going to move on to some more specific questions that people have sent in and that our support team uh, at the Encephalitis Society are fielding. But just before that, some more general questions that have been uh, put to us. People want to know whether you can still get COVID-19 after vaccination or even transmit COVID-19 after you've been vaccinated. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So no vaccine gives 100% protection forever. Uh, the COVID vaccines are giving sort of 70, 80, 95% protection. And what that means is that unfortunately, some people who will be vaccinated won't be protected. That's just always the nature of, of a vaccine. So uh, yes, you can get uh, COVID even if you've been vaccinated. And, and what the other recent data show, and you might expect this, is that the vaccination protection drops a little bit slowly over time so we know now that it's good for five six months etc and then but over time the protection will drop a little bit but of course it has protected you from disease during all those months the other the other really important question is is does the vaccine stop transmission again the perfect vaccine would protect me 100% forever against disease, and it would also stop me ever passing the disease on. But again, there are very few examples of that. And it's now looking as though uh, COVID-19 vaccines, they don't stop transmission. They probably reduce transmission. Again, it, it, the data are not quite there yet on this, but given that most transmission is from people who are coughing and spluttering over each other, you can see that if you have the vaccine and that stops people getting sick, then transmission will probably be reduced, even though it doesn't get rid of it altogether. But, but, but the really critical point is that we want to vaccinate as many people as we can, as quickly as we can, because even if it doesn't stop transmission altogether, it brings it right down. And this is where uh, this, this recent issue over um, variants, uh, mutations of, of the vaccine becomes important because we know that this is happening. At the moment, the vaccine is still good for, for all the current mutations as far as we're aware, but it may well happen that eventually we do have mutations that are uh, escape the vaccine. And um, 
that's much less likely to happen if we've got on top of transmission. If there's much less virus around, there's much less chance of, of these escape mutations happening. But I should say, on a reassuring note, that even when they do happen, if they do happen, and they probably will happen eventually, it will just be, then be a matter of us adjusting the vaccines. And we may well end up in a situation where, a bit like flu, where we are vaccinating vulnerable people every year. But um, uh, it very much, uh, you know, we have much, much less disease than we have now. So it sounds like uh, in the interim, until we until we know more, it's important that even if people have been vaccinated, then that they continue to wear their masks and socially distance. So people should continue with that. Um, well, one person wanted um, a, uh, a takeaway explanation that they could give to friends and family about why they should take the vaccine. What in a sentence or two, uh, what would you say? I think there are three reasons to take the vaccine. One, it will stop you getting ill. Two, it will protect others. And then three, it'll get rid of this damn pandemic with all the lockdowns and restrictions, et cetera. If enough people take it, uh, there'll be less disease and we'll be able to ease up on the restrictions. That sounds like a good enough reason to me. Well, in this next section, we're going to look at some questions that centre around viral encephalitis before moving on to uh, autoimmune. This first comes from Emma and, and echoes many others that we've had around which vaccine would be most suitable for people who've had encephalitis. So she asks, I had viral encephalitis one year ago. I also had COVID-19 after Christmas. My GP has told me that I'm not classed as vulnerable and I'm in group six, so a moderate risk. However, I'm on epilepsy medication from the infection as encephalitis doesn't appear on any of their lists. Which vaccine would be the preferred for an encephalitis survivor? I think the answer to that is the preferred vaccine is whichever you can get sooner. So there's no data at all to suggest any differences in terms of encephalitis survivors, whether one or other would be better. And I think people should really be taking the vaccine at the soonest opportunity because that will provide the protection that they need. That sounds good. We had a similar question from a gentleman who had herpes simplex viral encephalitis twice, and he wondered if his immune system, uh, his immune response to the COVID-19 vaccine will give him the protection that he needs. Yes, it should do. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a small number of people who get the vaccine and don't develop the immune response to protect them. But that, that could be anyone. There's no reason why he should be any uh, less likely to get protection than anybody else, even though he has had these serious illnesses in the past. Well, another question around herpes simplex encephalitis came from Julia in California, and she says, my boyfriend had encephalitis about two months ago, and I'd like to know if you guys recommend for him to get the vaccine. That's a, a simple one and a quick one, yes. Um, but what I would say, assuming he's now um, you know, making a good recovery, so he, he certainly should get the vaccine. Um, one of the, uh, but, but if somebody has another, an intercurrent illness, you know, if you've got a cough or a cold or a flu at the moment, then we would usually say, don't take the vaccine until you've got over that. And the reason for that is very simple. It's just that we don't want to be confused by, you know, somebody's had the vaccine and then they have a bit of a fever and then, then the, there would be confusion. Well, was that due to the vaccine or was that due to the uh, illness that they already had? So that, that's really why we like people to be healthy, um, uh, not have that kind of intercurrent illness before they get the vaccine. And also I, I should say two other very important things, which I really should have said at the start. Um, 
you know, I'm a neurologist, as you know, um, Ava, and I do research on encephalitis and, and have done research on vaccines as well. Um, and even though I'm sitting on this committee, uh, it doesn't make me, it doesn't really put me in a position to give expert advice to individuals in terms of their vaccine risks. And really, the people they should be talking to, of course, are the people who are going to vaccinate them, which might be the, the GP or the vaccination centre. Um, and, and in addition, um, people can get information on, on vaccine risks from the government website, etc. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, and I think although people have sent in these questions about their specific circumstances, um, you know, uh, the answers are uh, broad, I think, that we're looking about because you can't consult on individuals. We understand that. And also alongside this podcast, we're getting a vaccination consensus statement, which has been put together uh, with yourself and other members of our scientific advisory panel. Um, and that will have links to uh, other sites that people can go to uh, to get some of their queries answered. But it also makes the important point that you did, which if people have got specific queries, they must speak to their own treating uh, physicians and medical teams. So this is a question from someone, I don't even know if I'm gonna say her name right, Anya, A-I-N-E, um, that sounds maybe Irish or something. I'm not sure if I've pronounced it, so I'm sorry if I haven't. Um, she says, I'm 20 years post herpes simplex encephalitis, now 42 years old. I've had the flu vaccination for the last five years with no issue and very happy to take any preventative measures to safeguard my health. We're very pleased to hear that. Um, I'm chronically fatigued with temporal lobe epilepsy and associated hearing loss. Is there a preference for vaccine type? I'm a frontline worker, so due to get the vaccine in the next few weeks, the Pfizer vaccine is the only one currently available here. The mRNA vaccine seems like the logical choice. Of course, since we've had that sent in, of course, we've got both uh, AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccines out. Um, I think you said earlier, actually, I think we've probably answered this, that actually take whichever one you're offered. Yes, I, th I think that's right. And um, the mRNA vaccine is the Pfizer vaccine. That's the same thing. Um, the AstraZeneca is 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 the the Oxford one. And um, we don't know where this question's come from. And, and indeed, there are other vaccines in America. The Moderna vaccine is available, which is another mRNA vaccine. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's great to hear that uh, this person does get their flu vaccine every year. And um, it sounds like they will be getting the uh, Pfizer vaccine. And I would certainly get that as soon as you can. Yeah. Um, I have to say my husband was vaccinated on Christmas Eve and it felt like um, the best Christmas present um, ever really that we could have had. So um, we've had lots of questions around autoimmune and COVID-19. And this first one is from James and he says, I'm on immunosuppressants following autoimmune encephalitis in 2016. As a result, am I more susceptible to COVID-19? And would a vaccination against COVID-19 still be advisable? Well, it's a good question. So there are data, um, there are basically two types of data in terms of risk from COVID-19. There are, there are some where we definitely know these populations are at increased risk of severe disease. And that includes uh, the people who are very old, uh, also people with obesity, and also interestingly, people who've had solid organ transplants and are on immunosuppression after that. So, um, you know, that's somebody who's had heart transplant, kidney transplant, and, and are on strong, very strong immunosuppression after that. And we know from studies such as the Isaric 4C study, which is a brilliant national study with more than 80,000 patients in, that's being led by one of my colleagues from Liverpool, 
um, and is supported by the Health Protection Research Unit that you mentioned I'm the director of. And, and that study has, has shown quite clearly that people with solid organ transplants on immunosuppression are at increased risk of severe disease. So that's one group. There are people we know definitely are. And then there's an, a second group where there's no strong evidence, but where you think, well, it might be, it's, it, it's plausible um, and it, it, it may be that they're at increased risk. And I think this, this, this person um, being on uh, longer term immunosuppression, even though it's not very strong, as strong as organ transplants, they may be at increased risk of severe disease if they get COVID. Um, and therefore that's even more reason for them to get vaccinated as soon as they can. Okay, um, well, similar but slightly different, Jade asks, um, she says, I was wondering if there was any evidence regarding getting the vaccine and having had anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Even though I haven't been on any immunosuppressants for years now, I'm concerned about whether the vaccine will fight with my antibodies or will it be beneficial to me? Thank you. So this is somebody who is no longer on immunosuppression. So that they've not been on it for years. So that that issue doesn't really apply. But the question is, um, could the vaccine in some way interact with the NMDA receptor encephalitis, which, as you know, is, is all about antibodies against the NMDA receptor? And, and there's no reason to think that at all. So, um, you know, as we talked about earlier, what vaccines do is, is stimulate an immune response against whatever's in the vaccine, in this case, there's the spike protein. And uh, so I, I wouldn't think there's any reason for this person not to be vaccinated. Right. Well, we had a similar question in from, from Hannah and Debbie, and I, I suspect you'll say that the answer you just gave is the same, but, it, but I'll ask it nonetheless. They said the vaccine creates antibodies to keep us <clears throat> safe from catching COVID-19. I have autoimmune encephalitis. If my body incorrectly creates antibodies to attack my brain, could the same thing happen to me if I take the vaccine? Well, in autoimmune encephalitis, for example, NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis or other forms, uh, we don't know what triggers these antibodies to form against the brain, but uh, there's no evidence at all that, that that vaccines are a trigger. You know, people have looked into potential triggers. There's nothing to suggest that at all um, in, in NMDA or other types of autoimmune encephalitis. So um, for that reason, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't say that somebody should not get the vaccine. Okay. Well, in a minute, we're going to move on to some more general questions. But this final question is from Ray, and it's about his son. And he said, my son had limbic encephalitis 10 years ago, and now due to the steroids used is steroid dependent. He's a senior charge nurse and currently shielding. The vaccination centre consultant would not administer the first vaccine jab due to the impact it may have on his T cells. So I'm interested, he says, to see the outcome of this. Do you have any comment on that? Well, um, again, steroid usage is not a contraindication to getting vaccinated. And as we talked about earlier, somebody like this may actually be at increased risk of, of severe disease. So um, I would think this is somebody who should be vaccinated. But again, um, you, can, you can get expert advice on vaccination, either from GPs or uh, for, for, for some people who have uh, immunosuppression, etc., they will consult with immunologists. Yes. So whoever's still prescribing the steroids, um, uh, he should probably go back and, and talk to uh, his treating physicians. 
I think so. Yeah, I think um, the the person prescribing the steroids, you know, they they obviously they they'll know how much they're giving and, and the impact of this. But being on steroids is not a contraindication to getting vaccinated against COVID nineteen. Okay, thanks. Well, our support team have also been fielding inquiries from members who are caught between the guidance that they're receiving from their family doctor and the guidance of their consultant. So these are mostly applying to autoimmune cases and those with post-infectious encephalitis. And, and the first one is when someone is getting conflicting advice from their family doctor and their neurologist, what do you recommend they should do? Yeah, we, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier on and it's not helpful for patients at all when when there is conflicting advice um one thing i think is that sometimes it's just that messages are getting a bit lost along the way and so i think it's helpful to have written uh, you know if you've seen your neurologist or your gp to, to try to get written uh, you know evidence from them as it were is this what they were really saying and clearly to try to get them to talk to each other um, but uh, neurologists see neurological patients and are experts in looking after people with neurological disease. And um, although they mean well, they may not always understand fully uh, the uh, vaccine risk benefit ratios, etc. Um, GPs are, you know, one of their jobs is to vaccinate people and to think about risks and benefits, etc. So um, it, it can be difficult, but I think the key will be to try to get uh, different people to talk to each other. Mm. Thank you. Well, look, thanks, Tom. Um, look, the NHS is under considerable um, strain at the moment. It's the main reason that we're suffering further lockdowns around the world. So I think we're all resigned to a tough 2021, um, at least uh, in this you know, first half of the year. Um, I guess you, the final question I want to put to you is, is there light at the end of this pandemic tunnel? Well, well clearly, uh... Oh, gosh, it's been a, a, a very difficult year. 2020 was a, a tough year for, for everyone, for, for all of us. And, um, you know, I think what's been especially tough is that towards the end of the year, we had the announcements of the vaccines. Um, we thought we were there. We thought we, you know, we could see a way out of this. And then, of course, we got the new variants, um, which are more easily transmitted and also now there's some evidence that they, they might cause more severe disease. So, you know, that was a real kick in the teeth, I think, for all of us um, when it looked like we were, we were getting there. But what I would say is the vaccines are rolling out tremendously well, uh, in, especially in the UK. Um, it's a brilliant effort from all the way through from the people who made the vaccines and now through to everybody who is administering them. And clearly during this pandemic, there are some things where maybe the UK has not done so so well. But I think in terms of making vaccines and getting them rolled out, we have done really well. And, and as the numbers of vaccinated go up and up and up, then we will get this under control. And you know, eventually we will be able to ease up on these restrictions. And um, we will, life is not gonna return back to normal like that. And, uh, you know, we may never get back to life exactly as it was beforehand, but we will be able to start doing all the other things that we that we have done in the past. So, you know, I think it's really important that people remain optimistic um, and, you know, thank heavens we do have have things like the vaccines because, you know, ultimately that's going to be the way out of this. Yes, no, absolutely. Good point. Um, I think the last, uh, am I right in thinking the last time you and I were on our travels out of the country, we were actually together. I think that was the last time we left the UK, wasn't it? We were in Geneva at the World Health Organization probably nearly a year ago. 
That's right. Yeah, that was that was um, that was my last work trip with you. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, we were in Geneva. We were talking to the WHO actually about uh, encephalitis, why it's important, and also including vaccine preventable forms of encephalitis like measles, like Japanese encephalitis. As you know, in, in Asia, this this is a big problem, but we've had massive inroads through vaccination campaigns to to reduce the numbers of this terrible type of encephalitis and measles encephalitis and you know we shouldn't see that at all anywhere in the world but unfortunately we do because we still see measles so um yeah and it, it was in february i think and the outbreak had started um and it looked like it was going to get busier um and it's been a busy and, and difficult year but uh you know, ultimately, organisations like the, the WHO are there to help coordinate health protection around the world. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, they, they, they you know, I'm glad we have organisations like that uh, to, to help us deal with problems like this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you know, we've done a lot more work since that trip. I think that was your Christmas reading, wasn't it? I'm sure it was the last thing you wanted to do. But I think I gave you some weighty tome that we've since written. So people can watch this space. We'll be doing a lot more work, um, uh, you know, following that visit and those discussions with the World Health Organization. Yeah. Um, look, we and of course, the last time we were together in the in the UK um, was when things were a bit easier towards the end of last year and we had the encephalitis conference, which again, I think that's a really good example of how, you know, we are adapting, people are adapting. Normally we have a couple of hundred people at the Royal College of Physicians um, for the conference, for this conference, people couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. So we just had a few of us who are actually presenting and managing things, but we rolled it out uh, virtually internationally and we had more, a bigger audience than we normally do. So, you know, when we talk about things returning to normal, you know, some things will be better than they than they were before the pandemic started. And, uh, you know, I, th I think uh, there, are, there will be many positives. Yeah, 100% agree. You know, it really pushed um, the society and, and our team to create, as you described, this hybrid event. So, of course, we want uh, to be in person and I hope that this year we will be. But as you said, actually creating, going digital, creating uh, this uh, incredible event, I have to say, I felt a bit sick um, at that, the beginning of that morning. It actually went really, really well. And I, I'm, we were all so relieved and pleased at the end of the day. But um, I was writing a report yesterday for, for one of the funders and we'd increased, by going digital, we increased um, delegate uh, numbers by about 30 or 40% and increased by, I think it was 25%, 24%, the numbers of countries that participated. So, um, you know, we had 34 countries um, online uh, with us that day. And now, even if the pandemic stops, we wouldn't just say this is an in-person conference. We won't go back to that. It's, it's going to be digital and in-person going forward. And so it's pushing us to do things... Exactly. And, and, and the other thing I was thinking about this morning was World Encephalitis Day, which is, of course, on the 22nd of February, 222. And, um, you know, in, again, in the past, we've had some great events with lots of people together. The, the first one in, I think it was 2014, we, we had the world's largest brain, you know, several hundred of us crammed into a, a tight space to make this image of a brain and, um, and get our Guinness World Record for it. And um, 
you know that was great fun at the time but clearly we, we couldn't do anything like that this year but we're doing the, the the lighting up the buildings in red all around the world and um you know again it's a great way of, of raising awareness that doesn't involve people packing in tightly together and it, it's about us ad adapting to do things differently and, and you may have heard we've, we've, we've just heard that the liver building in liverpool this iconic building we're going to be able to light that up in red this year and we we hope that people will um, do well we know people are doing similar all around the world and I, I think if anyone is interested in lighting up their local iconic building and wants a bit of support they, they can find that support on the website absolutely if they go to worldandcarefullightersday.org um, and my team are there to help we've got people all around the world have mobilized getting these buildings lit up as you said you and your team managed to get the fantastic liver building in liverpool we've got niagara falls lighting up we've got toronto city hall the four danube bridges um, uh, across vienna are lighting up um the sales in vancouver so all around the world but you know but also i I, also, as well as those iconic buildings, you know, I think this is a challenge to people. I want to see as well, you know, there might be 20 or 30 of those, but I want photos of 222 buildings lit up in red. It might just be your own uh, house. It might be your bedroom lit up in red. But this is a challenge to to the many people who follow the Encephalitis Society to, to light something up in red and send the photos in. And I can just see it now, uh, 22nd of February, 222. I want uh, 222 photos of buildings or things lit up in red and it'll be brilliant. Um, well, I'll let you tell my team <laughs> 222 because I think they'll probably have a nervous breakdown. Um, but yes. But all our followers, come on, all of our all of our followers and supporters all around the world, surely anyone can find something to, to light up in red, even if it's just their, um, their little teddy, like I have here. Sorry, Peggy's, Peggy's been chewing this, but you know, send us get something like this light it up in red and send us a photo it'd be brilliant and then absolutely. everyone can get involved absolutely so well that's your challenge everybody you know february 22nd world encephalitis day get your local landmarks lit up and if you can't do that for whatever reason light up your own house red um, and of course wear something red and share your photographs on social media using the hashtag world encephalitis day and hashtag red for wed well, look, we really hope that we've answered many of your questions. If we haven't or you're concerned about anything at all, please get in touch with the Encephalitis Society team and we'll do our best to help. Don't forget that the society team and services remain open and at your service. If you've enjoyed this podcast and can support our work, please do so at encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Would it be, Eva, Eva, would it be terrible of me to also mention the Scouse Science Podcast? Um, we, as you know, we, I do a lot of chatting about science in an informal way. And if people have enjoyed this, then uh, search for the Scouse Science Podcast, on which we will be getting you, Ava. You are on our list of future attendees, oh, um, no. which, which will be great. But that's another, for people who like to listen to a lunchtime podcast or listen to it on their podcast providers, Apple, Google, etc., uh, then then listen out for those and as you know we've had some great guests we've had uh, Andy Bear the the Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, Andy Burnham I'm sorry you see that's the Covid uh, brain I fog know. I'm still not 100% and <laughs> uh, Jane Garvey from Woman's Hour we're getting Michael Burke coming on soon and we will even be having the famous Ava Easton at a future event so listen out for those if, if you want Stephen to. You had Stephen McGann on as well I was a little bit jealous I would have liked to have been on with him he he was brilliant yeah the doctor from call the midwife he was yeah. he was fantastic so it, it's a lot of fun and we talk about science and we also talk about society
Absolutely. So that's the Scouse Science Podcast. So Google that, it should come up. But look, um, we're at the end. Um, all it leaves me to say is once again, thank you to Tom. Everybody, please stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask and stay socially distant. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Bye now. Cheerio. Bye. Thank you.